So Lord, here we are in this place and gathered in homes all over this area because we want to meet with you. We need to meet with you. And we're grateful, Lord, for the assurance that we're not alone today. And we pray that there'd be a sense of community, even in our distancing, that in this same moment, even though we're in different places, we could come together as a church community, as a family. We've shared life together. We've shared hard times together. Now we engage in this trial together. So Lord, would you enable us to be together now for the next few minutes? And mostly, Lord, we need together to meet with you. So we welcome you into our hearts and minds and living rooms and ask for your grace, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks. Well, I miss seeing all of you. I am preaching to a red dot uh, on a computer screen or on a camera, and it's just not the same. I'm looking around, and I'm imagining faces. I can picture who sits where, and uh, I, I hope that uh, seeing me is in some way encouraging. I miss seeing you. It was really encouraging last week, those of you who text messaged me photos of your living room or of your family gathered around a screen. And I just invite you to do that again. That was so encouraging. Post a picture online if you're comfortable with that. Text me if you're not. And just share with me what it looks like in your house uh, when we are gathered in this way. Um, I would love to see those again. Well, friends, several years ago, my mom and I took a plane to Spain, and then we took a train to France, and then we started walking. We walked across the Pyrenees Mountains, and we walked through these old oak forests that reminded me of Robin Hood. And we walked through dried riverbeds and long, dusty roads, quiet, abandoned villages. One day, we walked through a family's vineyard all day long, mile after mile, the same vineyard owned by the same family. We were on this ancient 500-mile Christian pilgrimage route called the Camino de Santiago, the Way of St. James. And I was only able to take a couple of weeks off, so I did just a portion of the route. But my mom, she walked all 500 miles from France to the western edge of Spain. It's a powerful experience for so many reasons. All we did every day was walk and eat and pray. And then we would find a place to sleep, and we'd get up early the next morning, and we'd do it all again. We'd walk, and we'd eat, and we'd pray. One of the strangest parts of this whole experience for me was the day I left. I boarded a bus for the long ride back to the airport in Madrid, and for the first time in two weeks, my body moved faster than two miles an hour. It really felt weird. It didn't feel good. For two weeks, we'd walked all day, every day, 15 to 22 miles a day. We just walked, but now suddenly I was moving fast. Later, I was processing this with my spiritual director about how disorienting this bus ride was, how odd it felt to suddenly be moving 75 miles an hour, how strange the world looks when it's just a blur. When for two weeks, I had been noticing intricate details, contours and colors, the sounds of crickets in the pre-dawn and the sound of the crunch, crunch, crunch of my boots on the trail. That is the human pace. What? I said. He said walking. That is the human pace. That is the pace that we were designed to move. That is how we were created to live, 
walking is the pace of humanity. Today we'll wrap up our Lent series. We've called it Meet My Needs with the final phrase from a famous line from the prophet Micah who wrote 2,700 years ago. This is what Micah writes, chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's so assuring to look back over the last few months and see signs of God's goodness and God's guidance in our planning. When Melissa and I scoped out this sermon series, we were in a very different cultural context. It was only a couple of months ago, but we could not have imagined the situation we find ourselves in today. Isolating at home, school canceled, sports schedules postponed, all because of a virus that is spreading around the world and affecting everything from church to the Olympics And the question that we're asking, the question everybody is asking at some level is, what should we do? And piercing through the confusion and the chaos come the words of this Hebrew prophet from 2,700 years ago, articulating with simple clarity God's timeless answer to the question, what should we do with these three phrases? One, do justice. Two, love mercy. And three, walk humbly with your God. I want to invite you to write those six words down on a piece of paper, in your journal, on the chalkboard, in your kitchen, up high on one side, do justice. And then write down, love mercy. And then a little lower, walk humbly. And now across the page, I want you to write down three more words. They begin with the letter A. Across from do justice, write down action. And across from love mercy, write down attitude. And across from walk humbly, write this phrase. A way of life. A way of life. Pastor Angela shared this powerful observation with me last week. I hadn't seen it before. First, God calls his people to do justice, to make justice. This happens one action at a time. This is what we do. We are to generate justice. We are to restore broken things. We are to right wrongs. What should we do? We should do justice. That's our action. Secondly, God also calls his people to love mercy. This reveals the attitude of God, which is to be our attitude as well. We are to become people who love mercy. This goes beyond our actions, and it challenges our motives. As Angela preached last Sunday, the instruction is not do mercy. It's to love mercy. It is an attitude of the heart. And finally, God calls his people to walk humbly. Friends, this is how we are to live. This is the pace at which we are created to live. Not jetting around in power, but walking in humility. Walk humbly speaks to the day-to-day behavior of the community of God. The lifestyle of the woman of God is to walk humbly. What does it look like to be a man of God? You walk humbly. Sometimes Christians refer to their day-to-day relationship with God as their walk with God. Have you ever heard that? How's your walk with God? 
Walking is a long, slow obedience in the same direction. If you're going to get anywhere significant by walking, you're going to walk for a very long time, and you're going to walk for several days. Walking is slow. Walking is simple. And if you're going to make a movie about a person walking, it's not going to be a very exciting movie. It's going to be a pretty boring movie. Friends, I want to invite you to hear the Word of God, Walk Humbly, against the backdrop of this current moment in our shared history. In this time, in this context, how should the people of God live? That's the question. Here's the answer. We are to live humbly. We are to live humbly. Those who will serve as faithful representatives of Jesus Christ to our world in this moment are those who will walk humbly. That is, their lives will be characterized by a steady, faithful lifestyle of humility. Okay, so what might walking humbly look like today when life is so significantly impacted by a virus? We've never been here before, have we? What does walking humbly with our God look like now? And do we need to learn something new? Friends, this is the most compelling truth in my life right now. We don't need to learn something new. Okay? We only need to apply what Jesus taught and what the faithful church has lived out in obedience to Jesus for generations. Again, you don't need to learn something new. You don't need to discover something new. But you, you have never been here before, but you know what to do. Do justice. Okay? Love mercy. And walk humbly with your God. We... You and I specifically, we have never been here before, but we, the Christian church, the communion of saints, oh, we have been here before. And we can learn from those who have gone before us. Let me tell you quickly about the plague of Cyprian. The plague of Cyprian. It's 250 AD, right around Easter. This disease erupts out of Ethiopia. It spreads in the next year up to Rome. Soon it hits Greece, goes all the way up to Syria, and it's devastating. It lasts 20 years. At the height of the plague, 5,000 Romans died every day. The disease spread through contact, even contact with clothes. Those infected suffered terribly. The descriptions of the symptoms I edited out of this sermon because they are so intense. It's the stuff of nightmares. Death was so overwhelming in the city, people bailed out and they went to the country. Roman culture was crippled. Politically, Rome never recovers. Militarily, Rome never fully recovers. Agriculture collapses because the cities are empty. Two Roman emperors died of the plague of Cyprian. And everybody, everybody was affected. Do you know why it's known as the plague of Cyprian? It's not because he did anything to start the plague or uh, was involved in the, the disease element. It's because of the way he responded to the plague. Cyprian was the leader of the Christian church in Carthage which is a major port city in North Africa. And he wrote a book called On Mortality that survived and is the main source of information about this plague. How did Cyprian know so many details about this plague? It's because he was in the middle of it. It's because the only people who stayed and took care of the sick and buried the dead were Christians. 
What or why did Christians stay? What was it about a whole group of people that motivated them to stay when everybody else was fleeing? Well, in a word, it was humility. It was genuine humility. Now, there are two unique convictions that Christians held in 250 AD that other religions simply did not. And these two convictions are difficult for prideful people to embrace. It takes genuine humility to embrace and live out these two convictions. Here are the two convictions. One, Christians believed in the basic human dignity of every person. Dominant Roman culture had a far lower view of life in general. They did not see life as a sacred gift, and a person's worth or value was dependent upon what that person could do for you. So some people were seen as very valuable, and other people were seen simply as not valuable at all, but not for the Christians. To the Christian, every life mattered. Every person was valuable. Where did they learn that every life mattered? mattered. They learned that from Jesus. And then the second conviction of Christians was that they should respond to the sick, not with abandonment, but with compassion. The sick were not to be booted to the street, as was common. They were to be cared for through their suffering. Where did these Christians learn to respond to suffering with compassion? Well, they learned it from Jesus, From his actions, which were seen as so controversial by the religious elite of his day, they were taught to see life as sacred and to respond to suffering with compassion. And so here's the big question. What do those convictions require? And here's the answer. They require humility. They they are impossible to embrace if you're hung up with pride. In 250 AD, when Christians, remember, are still being persecuted in Rome, Christianity doesn't become legal for another 63 years. They were the only ones who had the humility that was required to care for the sick. They were the only ones who had the humility required to see every life as valuable, every life. They were the only ones who had the humility to respond to suffering with compassion and to make the choice to stay with others even in their pain. It was under Cyprian's leadership during the plague, which now carries his name somewhat ironically, that Christians invented something. Do you know what Christians invented? They invented the hospital. Yeah, a place where everyone could receive compassionate care. Do you see the root of the word hospitality? in the word hospital. Now, some will say, no, Nate, you're wrong. Hospitals existed before 250, and in some ways, they're right. There were houses for slaves where they would be treated for their disease, but the motive there was economic. And there were houses where soldiers would be mended so they could be sent back into battle, but the motive there was military power. Christians created houses of hospitality where anyone who was sick could come in and receive compassionate care. What was their motive? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with their God. 
Now, don't miss this external reality that helped Christians become and remain humble people. In the third century, Christianity was illegal. Christianity was oppressed. So unlike me, Christians in the third century probably didn't battle all week long with feelings of entitlement. All week long, this is the message in my head. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I can't do this. I can't do that. Been battling with entitlement. In the third century, when Christians were baptized, they knew they were signing up for suffering. I feel surprised and a bit offended when I'm asked to suffer. I am not used to suffering. A couple more questions. Did the Christians get sick during the plague of Cyprian? Yeah, they did. Did Christians die during the plague of Cyprian? Yes, they did. And the church counts them martyrs. But do you know what sociologists have a really hard time explaining? Christianity grew during the plague of Cyprian. It expanded. There were more Christians in the world in 270 A.D. after the plague than in 250 A.D. before the plague got going. The Christians were the ones who were known for staying and not running, for caring for the diseased and not abandoning them, for burying the dead when nobody was going to touch them. And people were drawn to Christianity. How is that possible? I wonder, is there something deeply attractive about a life of genuine humility? Is there something compelling about the quiet power required to stare death in the face and not walk away? Is there something beautiful about the idea that every single person is valuable in the eyes of God? Is there something wonderful about a religion that would welcome the suffering and say, we will treat you with compassion? The prophet Micah, he was on the scene a thousand years before the plague of Cyprian. But I don't think Micah would have been surprised if somehow you told him Christianity is going to grow during this time of a worldwide pandemic. Why wouldn't Micah be surprised? I think he would give you two reasons. One, because the church in 250 AD, they were walking humbly with their God. Did you catch that? They were with God. As they walked humbly, they were matching the pace of God. Walking humbly is walking with God. And the second reason Micah wouldn't be surprised that Christianity grew during a pandemic was that Micah is clear, walking humbly is what God requires, yes, but it is also what is good. It's what is good. You remember how Micah 6, 8 begins? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. Friends, this is beautiful. What God requires is what is good. This is what we were made for, to reflect the glory of God, to reveal the love of God, to extend the compassion of God. 
In the 250s during the plague of Cyprian, the faithful stayed. They did not run. They stayed and they cared for the sick. Christians were the first and only responders. They invented hospitals, not for the wealthy or for those who had an economic or military purpose, but for anyone who was in need. During the 2020 coronavirus, the faithful will likely be called by God to respond in all kinds of different ways. Our methods, friends, will be different. The call that God puts on our lives and on the church in this season will likely be different. But here's the transferable principle. The faithful response to this crisis will require humility. The world will need people who are walking humbly with their God. The world will require humility. We will require humility to see the dignity of every person. It will require humility to respond to all these trials with compassion. Friends, I've been able to talk with several of you over this last week. I know there's frustration. I know there's deep concern. There's loneliness. There's profound disappointment. Things we've been planning for and investing in and working towards that seem to be canceled or at least postponed. There's fear. There's anxiety and there's exhaustion. And I'm right there too. Your house, I imagine, probably feels way too quiet this morning. Or it feels way too chaotic this morning. One of the two. But here's the big boy truth. As my mom used to say, are you ready for the big boy truth? Here's the big girl truth. Here's the big boy truth. This is where we find ourselves. Okay, this is where we are. This is it. And we are asking, what shall we do? And the good news is this, friends. He has shown us. Jesus has taught us and shown us. You make justice now. That's what you do. And you love mercy now. That's what you do. And you walk humbly with your God. This is the way of life with God, friends. And this is what will be revealed as the good life. This is the good life. So may God grace us to stand up strong and to be the faithful church in this moment. Amen? Amen. May the peace of Christ be always with you. I want to invite you to take a minute, embrace those in your homes with you. Dads, look your kids in the eyes. Spouses, look at each other. Be graceful to each other. Extend peace to one another. And if you're watching and if you're sitting in your house alone, then I want to invite you to text somebody right now and say, I'm thinking about you. I miss you and peace to you. I'll give you a minute. God bless you. Greet one another with the peace of Christ.